class, I'll tell you. For me, I've always been um, a big fan of holidays. Rosh Hashanah, Simchat Torah, Zukot, everything. I love the holidays. Yom Kippur for me, I don't know about everyone, Yom Kippur for me personally, has always been like a very, very, very intense day. It has a certain like awe to it that you almost don't even feel present. I feel like always it comes, maybe you're so nervous about the fasting or the sitting in shul or whatever it is, and then it's gone and you just move on. Like Yom Kippur is like, you just want to get through it as fast as possible because it's just... And also to understand what's going on in the day. Like Rosh Hashanah, I always understood. Yom Kippur is very vague, right? So the point of today's class is going to be to simplify what the idea of Teshuvah is. So does anybody here have an idea of what Teshuvah means to them? Would anybody like to share? For me, it's just always to try to do whatever I'm doing a little better. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty... Too grim. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Or like a basic, a basic explanation usually for Teshuvah is regret of the past and deciding to do good in the future, right? What were you going to say? No, I was going to say the same thing. It's looking back on what you did. Uh, we all make mistakes. There's not one person that doesn't. Yeah. And to like look back on your mistakes and say to yourself, what could I have done better? How could I have reacted? Should I have not been emotional? Should I have not been... Yeah, that's should I've not been all those things. Yeah. How and how can I try to not do it going forward? Exactly. That's why the rabbi brought his wife today. Make sure he remembered all the mistakes. Remember oh, I did seven hundred wrong things and this is why I did them. Yeah. Without it having a purpose going forward. Just to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Yeah. Without a commitment, but you're committing to yourself. It's yeah. A commitment to yourself to be a better person. Yes. So I'll tell you the I'll tell you the challenge that I've had myself with the shuvah is that it's really a very when you look further into the texts of Kabbalah, Hasidus, Musr, the shuvah is like an all-encompassing idea. It's like not just regretting the past and moving forward in the future. Everything is the shuvah. The shuvah. The shuvah. The shuvah. The shuvah. Tefillah. Tzedakah. It's like so. What's the shuvah? So thank God we had a very holy man a few hundred years ago named Reb Zusya of Anipoli. He's the famous, famous Reb Zusya, Reb Zusha, he's famously called. He's the one that he coined the term of like, don't, God is not going to ask you why you weren't like Moshe Rabbeinu, why you weren't like Abraham, why you weren't like Isaac or Jacob. God is going to ask you why you weren't yourself. So Zusha, his famous thing is that God's not going to ask you why you weren't Moses. He's going to ask you why weren't you Zusha. That's what God wants from you is that he gave you a potential and to go into this world and fulfill that potential. So he struggled with this idea as well. He didn't understand. He said, Teshuvah is too intense for me. It's too big of an idea. So he decided he was going to take Teshuvah and simplify it into a five-step process that you can understand exactly what Teshuvah is. And to make it even cuter, and with a nice little ring to it, it actually follows the five letters of the word Teshuvah itself. So Tuf, Shin, Vav, Bet, He. Those are the five letters of Teshuvah, right? So Tuf stands for the Pasuk, Tamim Tiyah Im Hashem Elokecha, which means you should be sincere with Hashem your God. We're going to go through each one. So don't worry if you're not following. I just want to go through all five of them. We're going to go through each one. We'll start with that one. Tamim Tiyah Im Hashem Elokecha. What does it mean? Step one, to be sincere with Hashem your God. So sincerity obviously is pretty simple. It means that when you're praying or when you're connecting to God, you do it in a real way. You're not just there because it's the system. You're not just there because you have to be there because if you're not going to be there, you know, everyone else is going to look at you. We're going to say, why weren't you there? You're going to feel guilty. You're there because you want to connect to God in a sincere way. 
But to put that even more practical is he brings a beautiful example, beautiful muscle. He says, imagine you have a job. Let's say a teacher, because a teacher is always known as one of the happiest jobs in the world. They're very satisfied, really. Maybe not with the salary, but very happy with the... Only June, July, August. Yes, June, July. <laughs> but a teacher of, officially in America, when they have rankings of the happiest jobs, teachers somehow is always up there. Because teachers feel very fulfilled. Even if they don't see in the beginning, they see one day how their students get older and their students grew. It's a very fulfilling thing. So let's say you have a job that you feel very fulfilled. Whatever that means to you, if it's being the CEO of a company, making a lot of money, doing something meaningful in the world, maybe a charity organization, you feel empowered every time you go to do it. You have a certain simple, <clears throat> childlike enthusiasm. It's simple, it's pure. That is what it means to be sincere, is that when you go to serve God, you're just excited in a natural way. And I'll tell you a story actually of this guy, Rav Zusha. He doesn't bring it in his teachings, but it's a beautiful story with him. That one time him and his brother, whose name was Elimelech of Lezhensk, the famous two brothers, very, very big um, Hasidic characters, they one time they were in prison. And they're sitting in this prison cell and they want to pray. But what happens is they see in the corner of the prison cell, there's a bucket and that's the bucket where they were given to go to the bathroom. So the halacha is, the Jewish code of law is, is that you're not allowed to use, you're not allowed to pray in a room that has such a, a bad smell or something disgusting in the room like that. So they couldn't pray. So Zusha was sitting there and he was very downtrodden. He was like, you know, I never missed a day of praying. This is the type of guy who probably was praying the whole day. So he's like, for him, this is like a massive, he's like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I can't connect to Hashem every day, like wake up in the morning and daven. It's not right. And his brother, Ali Melech, goes over to him and he says, Zusha, you don't realize. He says, every day of your whole life, you were able to serve God by praying. But today you're able to fulfill a whole nother mitzvah. You can't pray to Hashem and that's a mitzvah because there's this bucket in the room. So now you're doing a different mitzvah that you never were able to do before. And they start dancing. And they're so excited, they start dancing around the cell. And then all of us, sure enough, the whole the prison starts dancing. Everyone's all excited. They're singing and dancing. And everyone just starts joining in because they're so enthusiastic about what they're doing. And sure enough, the guard comes along and he says, what's going on over here? And so one of the inmates says, I think they're dancing because of the bucket in the corner. That the bucket's getting them very excited. And the guard's like, oh, that's making them happy? The guard says, I'll show them. And he takes the bucket out of the room. And then they're able to dive in and they dance again. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it's a famous, famous story. Yes. To be sincere with Hashem, your God, which means that's the idea, to have the enthusiasm that it's not just you're doing it, which for me, again, I know for myself, every single year, including this year, when Yom Kippur comes, it's such an intense day. The amount of time we have to sit in shul, the amount of time we have to fast. It almost, you don't feel you get a chance to be present. You're just like so nervous of like, am I going to survive the fast? Am I going to have a crazy caffeine headache? Which... I definitely will every year. I have a crazy caffeine headache. And you're just waiting to the end, and then you're not able to be present. You're not able to be enthusiastic. Instead of being like, wow, this is Yom Kippur. This is an awesome day. Let me really dive into this day. So that's step one. Number one, step one in the five steps of Teshuvah is sincerity. Step two, the Shin, stands for Shiviti Hashem Lenegdi Summit. What does that mean? It means God is always set before me. What does that mean? Over here, we encounter an unbelievable idea. It's that every single day to be aware of the fact that God is creating the universe once again from nothingness into somethingness. Which means on a day-to-day -day basis, we naturally see the world in a certain set of laws of nature, right? We wake up in the morning, we do this. Maybe we have a good routine, which is very healthy. We have a set routine when we work out, when we pray, when we do this, that, etc., etc., when we do our grocery shopping. And sometimes 
we lose the awareness and the consciousness that there's a creator to the world. So over here, what he's saying, the second step of Teshuvah is to try to foster that awareness, to be aware that every day there is a creator to the universe. And when you look around, instead of saying, wow, you know, that's a beautiful uh, nature reserve, that's a beautiful ocean. You think there's a creator. You look at that ocean, you're like, there's a creator to that ocean. There's a creator to myself. There's a creator to my spouse, to my child. There's a creator every single moment to this wooden table. And when you foster that awareness, it creates a totally different perspective. When you're aware that there's a creator, that it's not you controlling your own life. You're not fully in control all the time. There's something that's pulling the strings of reality. It gives you a totally different consciousness every day, the way that you think, the way that you do things, because then you put a priority on connecting to Hashem, connecting to God, connecting to your soul, because you realize, wow, there's something that's creating all of this. And it's gorgeous, you know, especially here, we have a nice view of how gorgeous it is. It's unbelievable, right? So to be aware of that, that's step two. So step one, sincerity. Step two, awareness of creation. Yeah. Just wondering, um, that awareness, specifically on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, isn't that totally overwhelming? You're saying in what sense? The, the Malchiot, in other words, bringing him as our Melech, as the creator of, you know, that Yom Harat Alam, and with Yom Kippur that was standing in front of Saying it's too overwhelming to be aware. It's too overwhelming, specifically then. I yeah. stand for the rest of the year to have that awareness. Yeah. Specifically on Yom Kippur, having that awareness is, that's the overpowering. Yeah, no, so I'll tell you, for me, that's exactly why I was so excited when I saw this teaching is because for me especially, it's easier on a random Wednesday than Yom Kippur itself because it's so intense. And that's why this teaching, this five-step process to me was so amazing is because in a way it brings it down to earth a little more. Like Yom Kippur, the basic idea of Yom Kippur, which we didn't go through in the beginning, the laws of Yom Kippur, which I felt like it was too long and going a little off topic, is you're trying to basically, Yom Kippur is the day where you're supposed to be an angel. That's why you don't eat, you can't have intimacy, you can't wear leather clothing. It's the idea of taking away all the usual bodily functions or bodily needs that you have and trying to be angelic, trying to be spiritual. So what that usually does is that's very, very intense. Like you're saying, it's very intense. So I think over here, what we want to do, achieve with this class, for me, when I read it, to achieve for me, is instead of it being so intense, like all this, like, whoa, what <coughs> is all this just dominating for 12 hours and just sitting here, it's to bring it down to a practical sense of like what we should be thinking about that's practical. And on Yom Kippur, the truth is, if you can't be present because it's too intense, that's fine. I think for me, I, it's very hard for me. You know, if, if this only helps on a regular Wednesday, we'll help on a regular Wednesday. But the idea is to bring the connection to God in a very practical, real sense. So number one, sincerity. Number two, remembering the creator of the world on a daily basis. Looking around and remembering there is a creator to this whole creation. Number three, <coughs> the Vav. What does the Vav stand for? And you should love your fellow like yourself. So this really, when you think about it, loving your fellow like yourself, it sounds like it's not a Jewish idea. Any humane, civilized society should have the idea that you respect your fellow, you have to take care of your fellow man, there has to be rules for everyone that are applied to everybody and fairness and everything. So why does this seem to be such a big idea in Judaism? Like Hillel said, when a guy asked him, oh, tell me the whole Torah on one foot, he said, you know, that's it. Just as long as you love your fellow like yourself, then you're good. <coughs> so how, how does that make any sense? That Judaism puts it as a central idea when every other religion seems to have the same idea is because... The question is, what is your love based on for a fellow person, for your fellow man? If it's always only based on rationality, if I always say to myself, 
I only am going to take care of the other person because rationally speaking, if I don't hold myself back from going and hitting him in the face, then what's to say he's not going to hit me in the face, right? Then we have anarchy. And we have to hold back society from anarchy. And therefore, everyone has to behave. But that's a very surface level, shallow, external level of connection. Judaism says, the reason why you love your fellow Jew like yourself is because every one of us has a godly soul. We're all part of one big body. We're all part of one big organism. So it's not, oh, you should do it because it's going to, so society is humane. So we're not all going to be in fights and it's not going to be anarchy. The reason why you love your fellow like yourself is because it's an essential thing. It's from your soul. The fact that you have a soul and another person has a soul, that means that you're connected on a level way beyond just your physicality. And that's why we say, for example, the idea of giving charity by Jewish people is not just to give charity to help out another person. It's that whose money is it? Who does the money belong to? Maybe the money is in your pocket, but now you're able to share it with another person. It's all together. We're all at one in this. Yeah. Oh, yes. His <laughs> money. Yeah. He lends us two things when we come down here. One is our body, our physical body, and then he gives us the money so that we can use the physical body to take the money to do good. Exactly. It's also very simple. You yeah. think of it like that. But I've got one question here, if I may. It's Absolutely. Speak to Yom Kippur. This thing, love your fellow as you would love yourself. Do we Jews apply, are we applying that just only to other Jews or to every human being on the planet? So that's a tough question. I believe, especially from the way the saying goes, it says, So love your fellow like yourself. So it probably applies to everyone on the planet. The idea that I'm saying now though, is that it sounds to be more specifically applied to Jews. That being said, when you think about connecting the previous idea of the fact that God created the entire universe, when you realize every single thing in the world was created by God, you have a different respect for it. Instead of sometimes you look at something or someone and you say, how does that, meaning that looks like pure evil, that looks like, like bad, right? Like let's say for example, and I don't know if anybody is on Team Russia, I apologize, but let's say for example, Putin, right? You know, we always talk about the Haman or whatever. Let's say you have Putin. You're like, you look at a guy like Putin, you're like, why does he have to attack Ukraine? Why? People are always like, oh, we need world peace. And then you have a guy like Putin who just decides he's going to attack Ukraine because he wants more land for the greatness of Mother Russia. And you're like, why do we need that? I mean, I don't understand the entire thing, but it's like, seemingly that seems like pure evil or pure ego and unnecessary and not right. And it's like, who did that? But when you say to yourself, okay, there's a creator to the world. There's a plan over here. For some reason, this guy was created to do whatever he's doing. And we don't know what's going on. So over there, that gives you a respect for every single creation. Generally speaking, though, this idea, talking about the soul, is something which is more of a Jewish idea. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. It, 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 it's, we were all at Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. all given the Torah. We all committed without even knowing what was in there to follow it. And, 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 and that's our connection. Mm-hmm. We were chosen because the other nations didn't want it. But that's not to say that they don't exist. That is why you see whenever there's a catastrophe, who's the first country to send somebody to help? Exactly. That's loving your neighbors, you love yourself. Yes. You send people to Morocco and to Tunisia and to wherever else there's a disaster. Yeah. So to actually, by the way, I see I've written over here and I want to put this in because I made a mistake. Is that if you truly love your God, meaning that's where people make a big mistake, is sometimes you'll see religion or extreme religion, ultra-orthodoxy, leads to the opposite. It leads to separation between people. Exactly. They say, oh, I'm so orthodox, I can't speak to this person, I can't be next to this person, I have to be separate from them. But if you truly love God, then you love His creations. Because th- that was coming to the next thing I was going to say. 
I yeah. had that experience personally myself when I was here 50 years ago, <laughs> where when I was not observant, that I was told, uh, you're not a Jew, uh, by some real orthodox, uh, very from people, Aye. you saw anybody who wasn't doing exactly what they're doing as not part of the whole. And surely that's wrong. Surely, yes. 100%. So you're talking again about extremism, and we, we have it on both sides. Yeah. No, so that's why this teaching actually brings you to the opposite awareness. This teaching, if you love God, then you love his creation. You love his plan. Which means, what's the whole idea also of not just the creations? Gamzulatova. Is that you're saying, I love God. I'm connected to God. I know he creates every single thing in this entire world from every single instant, from nothingness into somethingness. That means nothing is happening in this universe without it being directed, directed directly by God. And I know Gamzulatova, which means... Even if this is something which I look at it and I say, I do not understand how that is good one bit. Like the Russia-Ukraine example. I think it's something everyone agrees on. I don't know. But let's say, it's like you look at that and you say, that is something I don't understand. But Gamzulatova, for whatever reason, God has a plan and I trust him. The same thing with every creation. doesn't matter Jewish, not Jewish. doesn't matter who they are, what background they are, what nationality, what race, anything like that. We say, it's God's creation. God created it for whatever reason. I have no idea. And therefore, I love it. And therefore, I respect it. And that's why I think we get more upset. And I'm not getting into any politics now. Yeah. Why? <laughs> we, we get more hurt when Jew fights Jew than when somebody else, when the Iranians are having a go at us or Hamas is having a go at us. We that's why we fasted on Monday. Sorry? That's why we fasted on Monday. It's on Gedalia. Yeah. And, and we, 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 we get very upset at fighting ourselves. And as I say, sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Yeah. And, and if you adhere to this, it wouldn't happen. Yes. That's, so the goal is to actually take the teachings and bring it to practicality. That's the hard part. It's not just to listen to it, but actually to, to make it happen. That's why usually when you simplify things, for me, then it actually comes to practicality much more. When you're learning sometimes very deep esoteric ideas or very intellectual ideas, sometimes it stays in the classroom. It doesn't come into the real life, into the streets. What were you going to say, Esti? Oh, I just, um, with Harry's original question about um, is it universal versus or particular to the Jews, I was thinking of, uh, you quoted Hillel, but it's actually Rabbi Akiva, which was, uh, yes, and, and then Hillel was the <coughs> opposite. Whatever you don't like, don't do to others. And it t did not use the Re'acha there. Yeah. How does he say others. it? I forgot. The, I don't don't yeah. to others. That you don't don't. Want that to yourself. Yes. So taking the reacha out of the equation there, yeah. where Rebbe Kiva connected what you said, the reacha and the Hashem in the pasuk, those two parts were together, is the particular for the Jew, but Hillel, who was um, open for everybody and was trying to bring everybody closer, took that part of the equation out and used it more on the universal level, whatever you yeah. uh, don't like for yourself, don't do to others in the plural. It's also more yeah. action. Well, you know, loving is a, you know, a, a more of an emotional, spiritual kind of act. Mm -hmm. Don't do, is that, is that his real, bringing, bringing it much more to the... Um, yeah, to and the, the truth of the matter is when you're speaking practicality, really practical, a, a person generally who loves his fellow Jew, if he's able to achieve that, meaning, Generally speaking, he also loves everyone. Like you don't see people who are like loving to a whole, because it's not even easy to love your fellow Jew on a daily basis. To truly be able to love your fellow Jew and to see a random other person 
generally speaking, that takes somebody who works on themselves to be able to be at that stage. So usually, it doesn't even matter. Like at least try love your fellow Jew and automatically you'll be a more loving person, a person who's more, you know what I'm saying? Like a practicality, like it doesn't, you're not gonna see. So that's the first three steps. You have Tamib Tiyam Hashem which means to be sincere with God. Second is Shiviti Hashem Lenegdi Tamid, which means to always have awareness of God's creation of the world. The third level is to love your fellow like yourself, which basically means if you love God, you love his creations. The fourth step and second to last step of Teshuvah is the Beis at the end, which is What does that mean? Is that before we were discussing viewing all of reality as a continuous creation. But now we're saying that not just as a continuous creation, that's one level is that you're looking at the world and say, okay, fine, this is created by God, the ocean's created by God, Israel is created by God, how amazing is his creation? But to also realize how it's all part of one huge symphony, that is a higher level. To realize how it's not just the creation is created by God, but what's happening within the creation. Like there's a famous story of the Baal Shem Tov one time walking with his students. And one of his students said to him, like, what does that mean? That God has Ashkacha Pratis, that there's divine providence over even the smallest blade of grass. He's like, are you being serious? Like, think about that right now. The, the numbers you're talking about are astronomical. That every blade of grass that moves in the world is controlled by God. How is that possible? So the Baal Tov told his student, look at that leaf over there. And he went and he looked at the leaf. He picked up the leaf and under the leaf there was a little worm. So why did the leaf fall? The leaf fell over there because there was a worm that was in the sun. If the sun would have hit the worm, the worm would have died and burnt on the sidewalk, whatever it is. And now the leaf fell to cover the worm. So that's happening all over the world. Millions and billions and trillions. I don't even know what numbers right now of organisms and atoms and all these things are working together in an absolutely astronomical symphony of incredible things that's running and controlling the world. And I want to tell you a story that somebody told me recently. Because this idea, it says actually that businessmen get to see this more than people who are B'nai Yeshiva. Like people who are B'nai Torah who stay in Yeshiva Kola the whole day. They don't get to see this as much as a businessman. A businessman in his day-to-day life in business gets to see divine providence in action in the world. He gets to see, wow, that happened, that happened. Meaning it's not just the creation, it's how, what's conducting the creation. So there's a story that somebody just told me recently, I'm not gonna mention any names, where he told me, he basically told me that he's planning on giving a donation of $30,000, okay? And then he tells me, after he committed to giving this donation, that he found out I don't remember exactly what it was. It found out like either the salary or the payout that he was going to get for that year after he had already given the donation came out to be $300,000, which what's the miser? What's the 10th of 30 of 300 is 30,000, which this is a very famous idea that we speak about that we say God does not remain in debt. God is a very good payer. He's a very good creditor. You can test God whenever you want. You can test him and you can, it's actually funny. Even the Lubavitcher Rebbe has a very, very, very amazing way of putting it. He said, don't go easy on God. Which means, by you giving charity, you're forcing God to have to pay you back. Because it says, if you pay a certain amount, God is going to take care of it. So the Rebbe would tell people, don't go easy on him. Don't, don't say, oh, don't, be, don't let God be cheap. Force God's hand to pay you back. That's the idea over here, that we're showing how the entire world is conducted by God. And the last step... Oh, can, can I just, So if we had to think of a word, I'm trying to like, like write down these five steps... The, the fourth one would be implementation. They created it, but then he's kind of implementing. The fourth one would be divine providence, is how I would put it. Meaning the providence of not just the creation, but running, meaning, I'll explain it in a, with a simple example that always okay. made it very clear to me. 
when we create something and we leave that creation, the creation lives on by itself perfectly. For example, if I'm a craftsman and I make a bowl, a metal bowl or a pottery bowl, whatever it is, I could put that bowl on this table, I could walk and move to China and that bowl is gonna stay here totally fine. The bowl doesn't need me anymore. That's how we create something, why? Because when we create something, we're creating something from something. I'm taking one piece of matter, if it's metal or pottery, and I'm creating it into another piece of matter. So it doesn't need me anymore. Even our children, you know, like once they grow up or whatever, maybe they'll still reach out to us or whatever, but they're, they can move on by themselves. When God creates something, it doesn't work that way at all. It works that he needs to constantly recreate it because he created something from nothing. There was nothing there before. So because there was nothing there before, it needs to constantly be recreated. And in addition to the recreation, it's constantly being conducted by him. Okay. That nothing happens randomly. Everything is all part of this master blueprint plan that we don't understand whatsoever. And if we would understand, then it would be no challenge to life. And that's the idea. It does say that the closest thing you could relate to um, divine providence is a mother growing a child, like being pregnant, because the baby can't really survive without you at that point. You have to constantly recreate it because it's kind of from nothing. I mean, it's it the is. closest you can get to it. It 100% is, really, is, yeah. Which is really cool. <laughs> it is. Especially yeah. Yeah, as Duane talked about the fetus in the womb, that the mother, the, the womb is all encompassing. But the fetus could be saying, well, where's the mother? You know, it's not oh, yeah. here, but the mother is all encompassing. So you can think of just man in, in the world. Well, yeah. where's God? I don't, I don't see God, but it's all encompassing. We're living within. God's world. Yeah, no, that's an amazing, that's an amazing example. That's an amazing example, a fetus in the womb, right? That's the best example, because it's constantly needing the mother. If the baby doesn't have the mother, it's, it could be very, you know, God forbid, we should never know such things. And I so think that, another thing about that, which I just <coughs> thought about, I don't know why, but is that when you're in the womb, you're connected with the umbilical cord. And we are connected with an umbilical cord to Hashem but we have to maintain it. In the womb, it, 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 it holds itself together. The minute the baby comes out, it's disconnected, okay? But we connect it to Hashem. And if you think of it in terms of like an umbilical cord or a radar antenna or whatever it might be, a Wi-Fi connection, you can give it any term you like. It's keeping that thing on, on, on the go all the time. Yes. And it's, it's not easy because they'll, we all hit a point somewhere during the day, during the week, during the month, during our lives, and we say, why did that happen, God? We talk, we talk back. And I once spoke to my rabbi about something when I was having Taurus. And he said, I'm very happy. I said, I just told you a bad story. And you were complaining to God. I said, why are you happy? He said, because you were talking to God. He said, if you hadn't been talking to God... I'd be more upset. The fact that you're recognizing God and you're talking to God, that's what he wants. Because when you ask him the questions, you somehow get back the answer. But that's a connection thing. It's a tele you can't talk down the phone if there's no nobody on the other end. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah, with practical life, it is, it's very hard to always apply. Like it's hard I mean, yeah. Like you said, you don't walk around all day going, oh my God, there's a car. That, that Maserati was made by God. That, that, <laughs> and if you do, you probably have a little bit... Don't walk around yes. saying that on every single thing we see. No, in Yerushalayim, I know some people who walk around like that, and it's not easy to live a functional life like that. They're a little bit in the clouds. In Sfat, or sometimes you'll see a lot. It's, <laughs> but it's hard to function like that, yes. I agree with you. No, and to, to, to apply it to day-to-day -to -day life, that when something difficult happens, 
that is a separate story because we do, meaning just to clarify on that point, when someone goes through difficulty, we don't rationalize it. Even if we have, like if we have every single answer from Tanakh and from this rabbi and that rabbi, if somebody goes through a difficulty, especially something as severe as a loss of a family member, something like that, God forbid, lo aleinu, we don't rationalize it. We don't say, oh, gam, like, oh, he comes to the rabbi, the rabbi says, oh, gam zulatova. No, we say that's something we don't understand. And that's part of what life is, is that there's a, it's made to be a challenging situation and for us to have to go through the challenge. If there was no challenge, there'd be angels. There'd be no point of us. God has angels that understand the way the whole world works. And he has them in heaven. But he wants to us to be down here in this world for some reason, to be in this matrix of a reality and to try to be able to overcome the challenges and to be able to get through life. So that's four levels of tshuva. We're do the last one. The last one is called really, the pasuk starts vehatsni, but I'm going to read it. He takes just the hey, which is hatsni alecheshem Hashem, which means you should walk discreetly with your God. What does that mean? Why is that important? What does it mean to be discreet, to be humble? True humility is that nobody knows that you're being humble. A lot of times it could be that people want, they want to be humble, but that everyone should know how humble they are. And that really takes away the whole idea of humility. True humility is nobody has any clue that you're being humble, that they don't even know the reality. And what he's saying over here is, is an incredible idea. It's the fifth step. Why? Because this step is extremely difficult to achieve. Because what he's really saying is to defeat the ego. That the ego, the human ego, is one of our most powerful, it can help us in many situations. It's important to have in many situations. Like we don't think that you should be a doormat, for example. Like we don't think, like what would be, what would be a bad humility? It's okay, right? We're Jewish people. You know, we'll be humble. We could give Israel to the other people because we're being humble. Why should we be so proud and say we need our own land? Let's be humble. We'll go and move to, you know, all live in a little Connecticut or something in a little town. We don't need to be so egotistical and fight for the land of Israel. That's not what we're talking about. That's false humility. No one's saying we should be a doormat. We should have a healthy ego. But the ego is the source of almost every single problem that we have. It's the source of anger. It's the, I wouldn't say the source. It's the same as haughtiness. It has to deal with pain. A lot of times, if we just had less ego, we wouldn't be so angry. We'd say, okay, this person offended me, big deal, fine. They made a mistake, whatever. But our egos, which it's normal for everyone to have, they really are the source of so much pain and strife in our lives. The source of so much suffering and, and, and family battles and everything just to take away the ego. So over here, what are you saying? Yeah? I've got a question. Sure. Because... If you're walking with God, like you said in the beginning, you wouldn't have to be discreet because you you will mirror who you were and you become more like him without having an ego. The ego part of it is a totally different matter because that is a self-centered, selfish matter. If you really have a relationship with God, you're not going to have that ego. So I don't really agree with But that. then how do, so what does it mean to really have a relationship with God? What does it mean to really have a relationship with anyone? If with a spouse, there has to be less ego to have a good relationship. No? You won't have an ego if you have a relationship with God. Yeah. No, so, so, so really it's step one. To initiate the relationship, you need to get rid of the ego. Yeah. But now yeah. here's the pager. <laughs> What's Rav Zusha famous for? When you get upstairs, Hashem's not going to ask you, why weren't you like Moshe Rabbeinu? I think so. Yeah. But, and now watch how this ties right into this. If humility is not, oh, I need to be a doormat, but rather I acknowledge that all the gifts that God gave me and all the tools that make up who I am are given by God. And I have, because they were a gift from God, I have no right to be 
cool, look at me, because they're just for Hashem. He could have given them to somebody else. Now, a Kurdish orphan comes to you at the younger 20 year and says, No, I gave you gifts. What'd you do with them? Why weren't you the best Elliot? Why, I, these were all the tools I gave you. Why didn't you just use them the way I expected you to use them? Yeah? I'd say you're a pretty good version of Elliot. <laughs> 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 yeah? No, I, I just wanted to say that I think there. It's really hard to, to understand I mean, when we're trying to translating like Torah concepts to psychological concepts, but ego, ego also expresses our individuality. Yeah. It's our super ego that tempers it, right? So what we hope for is um, that we can control the negative aspects of our ego via the positive development of a super ego. So I'm thinking, is that really where the connection to God is? I'm not sure. Just, uh, no, so, yeah, I think, the way, I think the way I would put it, very, very, very practical, because I think, again, I think practicality is the key of what we're trying to get to, is to think about it in the sense of a relationship of a husband and a wife, of a spouse, boyfriend and girlfriend, whatever you want to call it. If the husband or the wife has an extreme ego, if they have an ego which is unhealthy, it's, it's, it's uncontrollable, it's uh, like even to talk to them, it's uh, like, who do you think you are to talk to me? That's going to be guaranteed a toxic relationship. Even if the other person's going to, it's, it's guaranteed a toxic relationship. A strong ego with no control, with no sort of, because everyone has an ego, but with no tempering of the ego, disaster. No question about it. So God is basically the same thing. Is that like, if you have a strong ego, you cannot be in a relationship with God. You can't say, oh, wow, there's a creator of the world that's giving me, like even that realization, if a person has a crazy ego, they're not aware the whole time of God giving them all their talents because they're saying, wow, Look at how amazing I am. Like you're saying, look at how amazing and talented I am that I became so successful. Who needs God? You know, and that's what's happened throughout history many times. And that's really, someone was telling me the other day, I forgot who it was, that really the most dangerous times in Jewish history have always been whenever we're the most successful. Not when we're not doing well. When we're very successful, that's when people come to a point where they say, we don't need God anymore. Because look at how good we're doing. And that's when things get ugly. So the hard part is that while we're successful, while we're on the mountaintop, to say, oh, we got our gifts and our blessings from God and to be aware of that and to act like that on a day-to-day basis, that's the challenge. And the ego is the... <coughs> yes, no worries. Yes, absolutely. And the key of that is the ego. Exactly. The key of that is the ego. And I want to end off this with a short story, okay? There's an incredible story that I heard with a, a rabbi in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. His name is Rabbi Chaim Slavatitsky. He's originally from Antwerp, Belgium. And he's married to a girl named Chayla. And they are both rabbi and Rebetzin in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, I was about to close it, but the recording is on. And he basically one time, Erev Pesach, was giving out Shmura Matzah to people. And he one time went into a doctor's office and he was asking people in the office, because he knew the doctor of the office very well, he was asking people in the office, does anybody want Shmura Matzah? And he meets a lady who's reading a magazine and he goes over to ask her, do you want the Shmura Matzah? She doesn't even look up from the magazine. She says, I'm not religious. I'm not observant. I'm not interested. Stay far away. Like, I don't like religious Jews. I don't want to be, you know, whatever. He's like, are you sure? And this and that. He's like, it's free. I'm not asking you for any money. She sends him flying. He says, you know what? Here's my business card. And he gives her his business card. And he forgets about this encounter. This is Erev Pesach. About six months later comes Rosh Hashanah. He gets a call Erev Rosh Hashanah. Who is it from? This lady. She says, she, right away she introduces herself. She says, I was the really rude lady in that doctor's office six months ago. And she says, I'll tell you something really weird. She says, my father 
they just diagnosed him with very advanced aggressive stage 4 cancer, Yenemachla, in the hospital. And they've given him a few days to live. He says now he wants to see a rabbi. And she says, I have no idea why, because my father has zero, when I say no connection to religion, I mean zero, zero, zero. Not Yom Kippur, not Rosh Hashanah, not Pesach, nothing even remotely Jewish in our household, our entire lives. He's about to die, he says he wants to see a rabbi. I said, fine, I'm fine. You're the only rabbi I have his number, so I called you up. Fine. He said, 15 minutes later, he's in the hospital, and he meets this guy, Ronnie, 78-year-old guy. Ronnie says he wants everyone to leave the room, he wants to speak to the rabbi alone. So they close the door, and Ronnie says, Rabbi. He says, I know I lived my whole life, I know my daughter told you I lived my whole life like that, I never was connected to Judaism, whatever. But he said, all of a sudden, when I got this diagnosis, and I realized my life was about to end, everything that I had built in my entire life evaporated in an instant. He's like, I have a house, a beautiful home in Fort Lauderdale. I have a yacht. I have two amazing daughters. I have children. I have nice cars. I built a great, my life. And he said, also, I never had Jewish guilt. He said, I always heard when I was younger about this concept of Jewish guilt. I never had Jewish guilt. He said, my life was fantastic. Five star every day. All of a sudden I got this diagnosis. He's like, it's as if I realized nothing is coming with me. It's all gone. All of it's going to be nothing and I have nothing to go up to heaven with. I'm going to come to heaven empty-handed in, in two days, three days. That's it. So he said, I realized I was born a Jew and I want to die a Jew. So the rabbi says, yes. The rabbi affirms him. He says, yes, you were born a Jew. You're going to die a Jew. You have a soul and everything. And he's like, no, no, no. You don't understand, rabbi. He says, I do not have a brit milah. I don't have a circumcision. I need to be circumcised. So he tells the rabbi, he says, close the door and do it right now, very quick. Because... <laughs> And the rabbi is not, he doesn't know about a mohel and a rabbi, this, that. He's like, it's not how it works. <laughs> and he's like, no, you could just lock the door and just do it fast. I don't really think so. He says, no, no, no. He tells him, the daughter finds out. He goes out of the room. The rabbi tries to find the mohel to do the bris before the guy passes away. The daughter finds out, a, girl, a woman named Samantha from Atlanta, Georgia, and she starts losing it. She's like, this lunatic rabbi came. He's talking to my father. He's probably delirious. I don't know what's going on. But the father was insistent and he pushed and he said, I need to have a Brit Milah. Sure enough, the rabbi had a connection with one of the doctors in the hospital. And the doctor spoke to the hospital board and everything. And they said, there's no way they'll ever allow this because the guy is about to die. They're not going to do a procedure on a guy who's about, that's not the time they do surgeries like that. But he said, if you find a doctor that is also an MB, which means he's a certified physician and he is covered by the same umbrella insurance as the hospital, then they'll allow you to do it. So the rabbi's like, fine. He starts calling up everybody he knows, every network of it. Can't find anybody. It's very hard. Finally, he finds a guy in Brooklyn, New York. The guy says, yeah, I'll come. Right away, books a ticket, flies to Florida, comes to do the bris. They do the bris, and this guy chooses the name Avram. And sure enough, a few days later, he passes away. After he passes away, the two daughters decide they're going to cremate him because they lived their whole life zero, like they don't know nothing from nothing. So they're like, why not? Cremating is just a simple, easy, boom, that's it. So he says, you can't cremate him. It's a big deal. Amazement, so they bury correctly. He says, your father would not have wanted that and everything. He's fighting with them, fighting with them. Finally, they say, you know what, fine. We'll, we'll chip in. We'll chip in to do this Jewish burial thing. One girl gives $2,000. The other girl gives like $700. And now the rabbi is left with a $9,000 bill to bury this guy. And this rabbi was a new rabbi, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He did not have a lot of connections. He definitely didn't have a, a lot of money, any money. But he puts $9,000 on his credit card. He says, you know what? Well, just this, this mitzvah has to happen. This, it's a crazy story. We have to make sure this guy is buried correctly. 
puts $9,000 on his credit card. A few weeks later, he hosts for his synagogue a Siyum Sefer Torah. They have a big event and they dance through the city, a big Siyum Sefer Torah for a new Sefer Torah that was written for the shul. And at the event came Samantha from Atlanta because her friend was the one who sponsored the Sefer Torah. They were secular, not openly observant Jews. And Samantha came, she was a friend. And a few weeks later, his wife is looking in the mail and they see a letter from Samantha. And Samantha writes a whole letter about her for her to see in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, all these Jews dancing through the streets, celebrating the Judaism, a place where she grew up, she never saw anything like that in her life. She said that for her, it changed her whole mentality of Judaism. Her son is gonna start learning for his bar mitzvah. Everything changed for her. And she left the check of a donation for $9,000. So just end up with that story. And the reason why I shared that story is because Yom Kippur is a day of the soul. And I feel like this story really taps into the, into the depths of what it means to be a Jew. Even if we're observant, to the depths of what it means to be a Jew. And to go through, just to summarize, the five steps of Teshuvah. Number one, if we're putting them in one word, or two words, maybe. I don't know if we'll get one word for each one. Number one, sincerity. Number two, consciousness of God's creation. That's like one word, but it's not one word. Number two, consciousness of God's creation. Number three, loving your fellow like yourself. Which means if you love God, you love his creations. Number four, to see divine providence in day-to-day life. And number five is humility, to get rid of the ego. With those five steps of teshuva, those steps are not just for Yom Kippur. You could use those the entire year. If you succeed on those five, you're in a very, very good place. You don't have to worry about anything else. If you succeed in those five, you're in a very good place. Kabar Chatimah Tovah.